Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for book lovers. Do you want to get your message out to a bunch of book people, a bunch of art people, the kinds of people who go to concerts and museums, people who like to read good magazines and read, just read in general? Do you want to reach those people? Go to litbreaker.com, learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary slash culture sites all at once, sites like the Paris Review, the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, full stop, the list goes on. Go to Litbreaker. Dot com for more information. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for bookish, artsy, cultural consumers. Did I just say consumers? I'm sorry. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just one All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is Leaving My Mouth. This is Created in the Desert. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Uh, Episode 399, 399 times I've sat here and uh, done this. That's a lot of times. My guest today is Jarrett Kobeck. His new novel, which I like based on the title alone, it's called I Hate the Internet. It's available now from a uh, publishing house called We Heard You Like Books. And uh, I had a very fascinating conversation with Jarrett. He lives here in Los Angeles. He came over. He sat down. We talked. It just sort of kind of rolled. This is a longer episode. The conversation ran long. I let it run long. I was enjoying myself. I didn't really edit it. I think I, I think I uh, edited uh, a few like coughing episodes or something, a hiccup or two, but that's it. Otherwise, I've decided to just let it play. And, um, you know, most of that is because I just enjoyed the conversation and I feel like, you know, why not? Uh, another part of it, uh, it's late and uh, I'm cold. <laughs> I'm running out of time in my day. I need to get this show up. Uh, it's been a big uh, couple of weeks for me. I don't want to get... Uh, emotional on the air. I don't want to get uh, too uh, dark, but we've been dealing with some stuff with regard to uh, my son's health uh, lately. And uh, what do I say? I mean, it, we don't know too much definitively right now. There's a, There was a gastrointestinal issue that we had to have x-rays for and tests. And, you know, it looks like we're we're in the clear there. There's not going to be any surgery needed. 
there was some question whether he had this thing called Hirschsprung's disease, which requires like a really gnarly surgery, which was freaking me out. Uh, that does not look like it's going to happen, which is good. And then uh, otherwise, um, you know, we've been dealing with uh, a developmental delay. Like his left arm is not moving properly, which is really fucking scary and uh, is going to require a visit to the neurologist tomorrow, actually. So, like, my life has just been doctor visits and freaking out about uh, possible diseases or problems with my child. Uh, it's not clear that this is going to be something that's a lasting issue. You know, there, there's uh, been some talk, like, is it cerebral, uh, cerebral palsy? Which I have learned because of incessant Googling over the past uh, couple of weeks is really just a blanket term for any number, like fat, like a, a huge range of, like, a... Uh, what's the word? Motor delays. It can be anything from, you know, the, you're eating through a tube and can't move at all to like you can't even notice that the person has it. It, it runs that kind of gamut. So, um, you know, the good news is he has head control. He smiles, he coos, he can laugh. Uh, you know, he follows, uh, he follows you with his eyes. He does all these things that you want a baby to do. He can roll over. It's just really his left arm doesn't move as well. Uh, he doesn't grab with it. Babies this age are supposed to be grabbing. It's freaky. It's really scary. I had like one day, I think the day after we, you know, the day we kind of found out that or realized that something wasn't right. We were talking to the pediatrician. Uh, my wife and I, you know, both were up all night just Googling. And what's funny is that I was in the nursery because I sleep in the nursery with the baby usually and uh, slash every night because that's, that's what I do. <laughs> making sure you know he had like silent reflux when he was a baby and i was worried we were worried he was going to choke and then i was just like fuck it i'll sleep in the nursery and i'll do night duty i'll feed my wife was recovering from uh childbirth there was some postpartum stuff so i was just like i'll do it so i do night duties and uh of course i'm in the nursery after this uh this visit to the pediatrician and all these worries about his condition and i'm googling all night long which is a, a huge mistake but an impossible one to avoid in a situation like this. And then my wife is in the bedroom. She's Googling. Neither of us knows that the other person is Googling. And then at like three in the morning, uh, he, you know, he wakes up, he wants, he's fussy. He wants a bottle, whatever it is. I get up with him. And you know, at, when something like this happens to your baby, uh, you just like it, You just realize how much you love your kid. <laughs> Not that you didn't know before, but I like it's intense. I just wanted to eat my child is basically it. You know, any any kind of danger or in, in, or difficulty, you're just like, oh, fuck, you know. And so I get up with him and uh, my wife uh, hears me, I guess. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm holding him in the nursery, kind of like rocking him and, and just talking to him. And then she comes in and, you know. And we're like sandwiching him. <laughs> uh, it was a good moment. I'm trying to think positive. I would appreciate it if you would do the same. I know that, you know, is that a rude thing to ask? Will you think positive thoughts for this kid? You know, for people who have listened to the show for a long time, uh, you know, we had a hard time conceiving him. We went through five miscarriages before we finally conceived him via IUI. It was a long saga with a lot of heartbreak and then we have the baby and then my wife uh the poor you know the poor bird gets a uh, postpartum 
So she's been, you know, she was struggling with that. She's doing fine now. But, you know, it was rocky at the beginning. And just like every step, I feel like there's been a gut punch or just a terrifying something. And I don't want to complain because I know this is the thing. It can always be worse. <laughs> the least comforting words of comfort in the English language. But, it, you know, people have it much worse. We have this baby. We're lucky. He's here, you know. But I can fall into some self-pity sometimes where I'm like, Jesus, enough. Uncle. I've had enough. Like, we've had enough. Like, give us a break. So. That's what's going on over here. <laughs> I don't mean to lay all this on you, but what else do I say? You know, it's like, I I don't know what else to say. And, uh you know, we're going to know more in the, in the days to come. And I'm hoping that it's going to be something we can work on. I have a buddy who's a neurologist. He's got, he's got me like off the, uh, you know, he's got me off the ledge. He's talked me down. He's, he's telling me that we take things one step at a time. We deal with what comes. There are, uh, treatments and we can do physical therapy and you can, you can work things out. And there, you know, the infant brain, uh, there's something called neuroplasticity, which is basically the ability for the brain to, uh, fix itself. And in infants, it's, you know, uniquely, uh, plastic, if that makes sense. So I'm thinking positive. I'm thinking positive. Little river. He's a super cute little kid and he's a good kid. I know every parent thinks that and every parent is pretty much right. He's got a good spirit. You just see it. He's sweet, you know. He's not a he's not a he's not a difficult kid, especially for a kid who's going through a lot. His stomach, you know, his belly hurts, his you know his arm doesn't work, it's just like oh shit. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, um, let's get on with the show, shall we? My guest again is Jarrett Kobeck. Uh, he's got a new book out. It's called I Hate the Internet. It's a novel. And uh, I think this is somebody who has done a lot of deep thinking about stuff that a lot of us think about, but maybe not quite as deeply. He's also a very funny guy. Uh, he's a provocative writer 
and I just really enjoyed uh, my time with him. I feel like I learned a little something. Feel like there was an interesting uh, repartee, and just uh, was uh, you know glad to have the chance to meet him. And I'm very glad to have the chance to share this episode with you guys now. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jarrett Kobach, and uh, his book is called "I Hate the Internet." Yeah, I think so. You hate I, it? I, yeah, I do, but I don't hate it as much as I did when I was writing the book. Um, I actually I moved to LA about nine years ago and then I had a brief interlude in San Francisco for a couple of years and as people sometimes do yeah as will happen and I found myself in the middle of essentially a class war which I was not expecting to be in the middle what do you of. mean like the tech people yeah the- I was I was living in the mission district uh-huh. which is and I was at more or less the exact high water point of where the waves of gentrification were breaking onto what had been this pre-existing... Like working-class neighborhood. Working-class Latino neighborhood. And one of the things that happened is that this restaurant, which was uh, opened up very, very close to where I was living, and it turned out to be one of the prime symbols of gentrification in the neighborhood and this real focus point of angst between clearly a new money situation and uh the people who had lived in the neighborhood for decades so wait decades. what happened with the restaurant they they were moved, so, they were they were putting a restaurant in or they were so it had been it had been this um it had been a corner store for decades and decades and decades and then the corner store got evicted or maybe they didn't make their rent i can't, I can't remember and then it was vacant for quite a while and then Um, this guy, uh, decided he would put a restaurant in and somehow, and I mean, part of this, part of this too, is that San Francisco has this really weird thing where it's a completely legitimate thing for someone to, so he, he was opening this restaurant and he didn't really talk to the upstairs neighbor about what that would mean. And this was an incredibly small space. It was about four or 500 people or four or 500 square feet and her apartment was directly over it. So she started circulating a petition around the neighborhood about whether or not, uh, this restaurant should open. And what kind of restaurant was it going to be? It's like a, like a, a a locally sourced seafood restaurant. Okay. So locally sourced as soon as I heard that. Yeah. No, that's the, that's the, uh, code for like, you know, new age enlightenment or something. Yeah, or something like it. Or I mean, just like it, it, see, it, 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 it is the hallmark of the kind of yuppie gentrification. Yeah, exactly. That's that's right. It's the sign of the beast. Right. And <laughs> and so anyway, she and and I should say too, just to yeah. be fair, it's not a bad thing to locally source no, your food, but no, it's just it's, like, it, but, and yet it's annoying somehow. Yeah. Well, I think I think like everything, you probably shouldn't make a fetish out of it, and, and that's usually where the it goes from being something that's good into something that's annoying when you really have that, that moment that it becomes a selling point is probably where it all goes to hell. Right. Uh, um, but so anyway, long story short, there, there ended up being a lot of resistance amongst the people who actually live near the restaurant, uh, 
to an opening, including me. I, like I ended up in meetings at City Hall. It was it was the strangest. <laughs> you got thing. involved as a citizen. Un- unlikely as it is, yes, I did wow. for the first and only time in my life. You'll never do it again. Uh, no, because I mean, you know, what ended up happening is there was it clearly was going to open. I mean, it's America. It's even in San Francisco, we're open for business, right? The, of course. The, the the way that laws work is business first, everything second. Um, so the restaurant opened, and then you know. It was not a happy situation uh, for anyone because it had already been poisoned by this this process. And then, oh, I don't know, maybe seven or eight months into it being opened, uh, on Cesar Chavez Day, they denied uh, Latino family service. Uh, and it, On the basis of what? Like, what was their rationale? I, I mean... There were different explanations, obviously, because there always are. But um, the Latino family clearly felt that it was on the basis of them being Latino. Now, the terrible misfortune was that the grandmother who was in this party was actually a beloved neighborhood activist. Mm. So she went home and fired out an email to... Oh, I don't know. Every neighborhood activist <laughs> in the neighborhood, and this turned into. Um, Were you on that chain? No, because like I said, I got involved and then I got out. Yeah. I, I realized that no, I I am like the fay liberal elite who will <laughs> who will lay around on a couch and be upset about things, but <laughs> I'm never going to city hall again. Um, but anyway. It turned into this huge flashpoint. It turned into this huge flashpoint because you can't really pinpoint Google, right? You can't say, oh, this is what Google is doing to us. This is what Facebook is doing to us. Partly because these are such huge nebulous entities, partly because they have enough money to buy good public relations. You can point to a restaurant that's denying Latino people service. Right. Um, and so then it really became this crazy thing where the restaurant was getting vandalized. Uh, it was on the news constantly. And finally, what, what was really the moment of being like, I've got to get out is there was a, uh, protest down 24th street, which would have been a pre-planned protest. And at one moment where they got to the street, because because the restaurant was on 23rd Street where they got to the to the street that the restaurant was on they were like well let's just divert the protest down the, down the street to go protest the restaurant i'm a couple of doors away suddenly there's just like this enormous protest in front of my apartment it's like 500 people the woman who's been denied service is on the back of a flatbed truck <laughs> People, she have a uh, megaphone? Yeah. She, she, no, she had a pay, PA. There oh, was wow. a PA on the truck. Okay. So, she, you know, it was just like this moment of being like, life has now entered the realm of complete madness. I cannot be around this. How anymore. angry was the crowd? Was it scary? No, I mean, they weren't scary to me because I wasn't the one who denied them service. Yeah. I'm sure that if you were the employees who were in 
the restaurant who were behind the glass, who, you know, were having people, you know, there were maybe 30 people with drums banging on the windows simultaneously. Well, it's, it reminds me, it's like when Nixon and Kissinger in the Oval Office, like during Vietnam War protests and Nixon's like, my God, they're going to come over the fence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were, it's a, a little bit different, but kind of the same feeling, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. It, it, they were besieged, you know, and they certainly deserved it um, in both cases. But it really, it really was this moment of being there at that time. And I suspect that since I've left, since I've left, because I left in 2013 at the end of the year, um, that it's probably a result. The restaurant's gone out of business anyway. Oh, really? Yeah. But, okay. But Resolution. I, but I think the reality is that the tech money, the gentrification driven by tech money, I think that's probably won. When I, when I was there, it had yet to win. It was clearly on the verge of winning. I think the reality is... How could it not win? Yeah. I mean, no, unless it, there's like some sort of like <clears throat> extraordinary... Uh, level of organization among the proletariat. Like you're not going to beat no billions of no. dollars coming out of Silicon no. Valley. It's, it's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. It's so, an unfair fight. Yeah, and being in San Francisco in that moment at that time, uh, it was it was like watching someone die of a terminal illness. I, it was a really, really it affected you that deeply. Yeah, it was horrifying. You're a sensitive it, man. I. <laughs> God help me, I am. <laughs> um, it really was terrible because yeah. you could just see communities being destroyed, and you didn't. You didn't really even. It's. It, I I had lived in New York when the East Village was being gentrified, and that was something. But it wasn't anything like this. It wasn't nearly as horrifying as what this was. Because I, 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 quite, I can't quite figure out why. I guess partly it was the speed of it. You know, there, there started to be this term that floated around called hyper-gentrification. Uh, because when gentrification is not enough. Yeah, pretty much. And, yeah, having been around gentrification before, having, of course, been part of gentrification because artists are the shock core of gentrification – it was like nothing. What does that mean? They're the shock core of gentrification. Well, they they come first, right? They're the one writers, artists, where, wherever there's cheap rent, they move into Bushwick. They, they move first, into Bushwick, and they, then they they figure out a way to get in basic amenities that uh, are would appeal to people with money, like decent coffee, and <laughs> you know. Um, designer denim and then it's then that attracts the real evil but there's there's a certain evil in in being the artist gentrifier too but it's not quite on the level of yeah usually when it's presented it's like the artists are like the kindly souls of modest means who get evicted or, or you know can no longer afford to live in the neighborhood they once right ruled yeah well there's always there's always a really interesting moment in those situations where there's always about a year where it's in perfect balance, where there's artists and then there's the people who were there before them. No one's really been kicked out yet. It's re it's, it's halcyon days. Yeah, it's a really beautiful moment that then gets stomped on 
the, like the jack boot of oppression kind of stomping <laughs> down. It's like New York and like, like, like the village in like the 80s or whatever. Right. right? Yeah. I, and I mean, I didn't get to the village until the late 90s when, when I went to college. And it was still pretty rough depending on how east you went. Where'd you go to college? I went to uh, Eugene Lang at the new school for about a year and I found that to be an appalling experience. So Why? I, uh, what, what is Eugene Lang? I don't Eugene, even know what that is. Eugene Lang is like um, their, their undergrad division. Now, I should say in its defense, it's expanded enormously and is apparently a much, much different school now. When I was going, it was maybe about 200 kids. There wasn't a lot of faculty. There wasn't a lot of um there there just wasn't a lot of courses so it was it was it was <laughs> kind of school is this it, and it well and it was it was designed as one of these these alternative education schools where you didn't even get a, a BA in in anything there were concentrations but i think the BA just comes with a degree that says bachelor's of arts i had come out of an alternative arts high school so i, I thought i was where'd you go to high school i was uh, in providence oh, uh, in Rhode this, yeah this um this this alternative arts high school called school one which was an incredible freak show and um so i was like well all right i'll guess i'll extend the circus i'll, <laughs> I'll go to this go where i go where it feels comfortable. yeah and it was really an unfortunate experience so then i went to i transferred to nyu because the eugene lang and nyu occupy very very close physical space they're in really close proximity so you could sort of see the kids at nyu and be like oh wait this is like a school with resources this is a place you can go and actually <laughs> These kids have books pretty much <laughs> you know and so i transferred into nyu and then i took you know, a couple of years to get out of it. But I managed to get to the East Village pretty much at its last gasp. And at that point... It's death rattle. Yeah, and I mean, at that point, it had already completely changed from what it had been earlier. But even that process of seeing what happened to the East Village between 1990. I don't even know what year I showed up somewhere in the late nineties to, to the present. It's like nothing compared to San Francisco, just nothing compared well, to what San was Fran happening in the mission. So. I mean, I guess it's the speed. Maybe, I mean, San Francisco is not that big of a town geographically. Right. It feels kind of like a village in a way. Um, so maybe it, you're more sensitive to it from that uh, end of things. And then with regard to, you know, hating the internet, uh, it sounds like you were and writing this novel. It sounds like you were, placing a lot of the blame on just tech and like that was fueling. oh yeah you're no. angry you're like this is why it's happening and well i mean i i think the other thing too is that when you are so i originally had a tech background too i worked in tech for a while not silicon valley tech but how do i you know the the meager scraps of tech that you can get well like web design web design and then working as a sysadmin at one point and and all of this stuff um so it started to become clear to me when I was thinking about this book that that's a really interesting perspective. Um, lots of people hate the internet who are artists and who are writers, but who are always on the internet, who are always on the internet, <laughs> but who don't actually know how the technology works. Right. I actually, and I mean, God knows my, my, my understanding is not hugely sophisticated, 
I have a pretty good understanding of how the technology works. Meaning what? Um, like meaning how to program, know, knowing how just the underlying technology of the internet actually works. Well, like, is it works. stuff – like, I mean, is well, it so, like, with, with regard to, like, how the uh, – how uh, a company like Google might track your search history or use your information to feed you advertisements, yeah, like I, that kind of stuff? Yeah, but, I mean, even even more basic, like, just the way the, – the basic nature – so – I should let me back backtrack and just say that one of the things about the book, one one of the places where the book sort of tries to engage with the internet is in terms of what the technology actually does and what it really means. And there's this idea in the book that um, when technology is created, the spoken and unspoken ideologies of its creators get embedded within the technology itself. So the, 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 the appropriate Sounds sinister, it, it is a little bit. Um, so like the appropriate metaphor, I think for the internet is the camera, right? The camera is this device that we have sort of come to accept as its own self-evident truth, right? If it's on film, it happened. And what we don't really think about is what was motivating the people who invented the camera? What was motivating the, the process of photographic development? And what to them, if you were, relatively speaking, a, a, an upper middle class guy in 19th century France, what does a good picture mean to you? And so a good picture to you would be a picture that can effectively capture uh, what a white person looks like, Right. It doesn't, and then you sort of start thinking about, well, what does that mean? Like, what, like a, a, a historical counterfactual would be, what if the camera had been developed in Africa, right? What if the camera had been developed with blackness as the baseline of what an appropriate photograph would be? What would history look like from that point going forward? Because you would have cameras that maybe weren't very good at capturing pictures of white people. <laughs> and then what would that mean? Because so much the camera has been used so consistently to dehumanize people of color. Um, and the argument that I would make is that is not because that is not a pro that is not something which is inherent in the camera. That's something that was inherent in the ideology of the people who created the camera so if you extend that argument to the internet, even in its very infancy, you have a computer network that was designed as part of the military industrial complex, right? So you have all of this war technology uh, that's underlying it. And, and then it goes from there. So one of the things... Well, that's interesting that you say that because so much technology and so much uh, technological advance is often in America anyway, funded by military expenditure. Right, right. And so you, the, the, the paradox becomes at some point you have all of this war technology that people are then maybe 20 years later, 30 years later are arguing is this means to freedom, this means to unfettered life. And it's, it's a little bit like expecting a V2 rocket to shower you with flowers, right? <laughs> you're, it's crazy. It's a really strange thought. It's like 
what you're looking, what you're using when you use the internet is a weapon. You're using something that was designed to survive a Soviet attack. Same thing with ecstasy, or no? Where LSD was weren't like some of these pharmaceutical hallucinogens also developed as you know like truth serums or like yeah, psychological... some of, some of them, yeah. I mean, yeah. you could you could extend it to, to that if you're taking this, you know, all right. the way. And and so when you have something like the internet, there's this idea the the way that the basic method of data is transferred on the internet is this thing called packet switching and the idea of packet switching, which I'm going to botch horribly because it's complex and I don't fully understand it is this idea that no piece of data is treated with any more prominence than any other piece of data. And there's a way that it can route around in case parts of the network fall off. You can sort of see an extension of that to something like the idea that the internet inherently supports free speech, right? Um, which it doesn't. I really don't think it does. I think that what we have is corporate reverse engineered free speech um, by virtue of really bad laws. But the this idea that if you don't give any more prominence to any data any piece of data sort of gets you into the situation where being right is just as virtuous as being wrong because there's no way to really distinguish between the two. I mean, journalistically, I think, I mean, yeah, the and internet well, becomes a, hard to parse. Right. No. And, and journalistically it's, it's turned into just a shit show, right? I mean, it's, it's awful. So, it's, and when you talked about corporate reverse engineered, sure. What does that mean? So there was a law that was passed in 1996 called the Communications Decency Act. Um, most of it has been struck down because it really was um, intended as an anti-pornography statute. And it, almost all of it got struck down except for, I mean, I think there are a few things that didn't. But the most important thing is Section 230, which is a law that effectively indemnifies anyone who provides a web service from being sued if one of their users does something crazy on that service. So if you have, um, you know, it, it's like, the, it's, it's why comments exist. And it's a really strange moment because I think there really is this idea that well, there's free speech on the internet, but there's not really. Because if you go on to CNN.com or the New York Times or whatever, you, you're the one responsible for what you say, but they're not. Um, the reason why I think this is sort of a reverse engineering of free speech is because I think when the internet was for or the web at least was first developing people were really interested in sort of citizen journalism right and it was like everyone's going to have their own website we're all going to put this <laughs> these horrible horrible looking things up but the reality is you can still do that no one will ever look at it no one will ever look at it like um, your mom might your mom might <laughs> or if you know you introduce a lot of supplementary things you might get some some traffic but the reality is most of the internet is now on 
oh, I don't know, 10 websites? No, that's the thing. I was, I was reading just uh, the other day, there's like some assessment of uh, news, you know, news media consumption online. And it really, the, the vast majority of it is 10 right. sites. Yeah. Everybody's going to the same 10 sites to get yeah. their news. And so, um, but so what it really does is it, it herds free speech into these boxes like Twitter um, where, but the reality is that Twitter has no legal responsibility to any of it. The people who are responsible are deluded teenagers who are saying some, you know, crazy shit. And you think Twitter should be responsible? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, doing, and what what would you want them to do differently? I, I think, well, here, here's, here's the analogy that I think is the appropriate one. What, if the, would the, if you had a newspaper, if you had if you were the the owner of the L.A. Times, and someone wanted to put in a classified about a classified ad about, I don't know, killing all the Jews, right? You would be responsible for that if you ran it. I don't see what the difference is between the two things. It's a difference of scale, but the only reason that scale is there is because there was this essentially corporate bought legal protection put in in the first place so you have this moment of original sin in 1996 where the entire internet takes this turn towards on one hand i understand the rationale behind it on the other hand you do have this this turn towards where we are now which is this giant global network designed to tell women that they're sluts right that's the function of twitter is pretty much to just abuse the shit out of women and it's like i guess it's legal so it's going to be there you think that's what twitter is yeah absolutely well i think twitter's two things i think twitter is is about abusing women and i think it's also about stealing intellectual property from black people um by a company by the way which was given an enormous tax uh, break by Ed Lee of San Francisco to move into a neighborhood and essentially ethnically cleanse it, pretty much of black and poor people. So that's what I think Twitter is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a bleak view of Twitter. I have a bleak view of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you and you write, uh, this is uh, satirical and... You are uh, deconstructing and criticizing, um, you know, pretty much the, I think it's the major, uh, the, the main way, what, like how people consume media these days right. is online. Right. That means that you you must have spent a lot of time online. You know, I, for people who get angry about this stuff right. and then wind up writing satires about it, right. you're deep in it. It's not oh, like, yeah, it's not like no. you're on the sidelines. Less Less now than I used to be, but I mean, I've been on the internet forever. I've been on the internet forever. How participatory are you in social media? <laughs> Absolutely not at all. I, I can't take it. I have a Facebook account. Um, I rarely, if ever, update it. But I, I, I know su- Twitter. No, I have a Twitter, but it hasn't it hasn't been updated since 2010, and it only has about five tweets on it. <laughs> and the major reason... Do you go and read, or do you just stay away from it entirely? I, Twitter, I think, is just just a clusterfuck i don't think there's anything that really comes out of there i think there's the illusion but you things. can you can choose who you follow what if you follow people who aren't uh shitty i mean you can but i don't i don't think a huge amount is being said there i genuinely don't i think 
I think it's hard to say much in 140 tweets. I really do. 140 or 40 character. characters. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't. Th- I really don't think much comes out of Twitter. It's a joke. It's a joke machine and a, yeah. and, a and a link sharing thing. Yeah. You know. That we we um for for the the book there's a Twitter account that is set up. Um, and all it does is every time it's it's a robot, and every time I used to have a, I used to be a robot on my Brad Listy account. I went through two phases where I was like, "Fuck it, let's automate yeah. this," <laughs> and I took all this um, like accounts of psychedelic experiences mm-hmm. that were posted online, mm-hmm. and I just created this huge document, thousands and thousands and thousands right. of words, and then my buddy built me a robot that would just take would grab phrases and just spit them out right so it just made me seem like a crazy person well our the our robot uh what it does is every time someone tweets that they hate the internet which happens constantly it just retweets it (laughs) so so i think it went up in i don't know october and it's got about fifteen thousand tweets now and it's it's very strange because there will be days where it'll be 20 tweets and then there will be days where it'll be about 500. Well, some days the internet sucks worse than other days. Yeah, it, it seems to be related to <laughs> the first thing that was huge was um, when the uh, the video for Drake's Hotline Bling came out. That was enormous. And then uh, the terrorist attacks in Paris were enormous. And then uh, when the new Star Wars movie came out, that was enormous. Yeah. And and then those were like the, the three huge mountains. And then it's just been sort of valleys in between. But you do, you do, when you look at that, you do learn quite a bit about twitter and and how unbelievably depressing it actually is (laughs) the amount of people who have tweeted like fifty thousand times and a lot of and who have maybe a hundred followers it's crazy it's that's a depressing thought (laughs) and it's most of the people that get retweeted by the by the bot it's it's just like 25 followers and 50,000 tweets something like that yeah and i mean that's really if you think about it that means yeah what is a non-depressing number of twitter followers like when do you cross the threshold into okay like i have an audience like this is maybe not the loneliest saddest thing ever i think it's when you have more followers than you have tweets i think that is that seems like a good metric yeah there's there's actually in the book there's an there i i worked out a uh an equation to <laughs> to figure out who how how influential people are on on twitter and that's basically the heart of it there's there's some other stuff around it but it was i did it as a joke and then realized afterwards that it works really well so um and what do you think about people who do who are just live on Twitter and are constantly tweeting, even if they have lots and lots of followers, but these right. people who that's where they, that's where they kind of exist. Well, it's, I think, I think it kind of depends on the age of the person. Cause God knows if it's a teenager, what, what else are they going to do? Right. Yeah. But you get some other people and it's just like, don't, don't you have to eat? <laughs> don't you have to go somewhere but and like what psych i mean i guess there's not one one answer to this but like i I sometimes wonder like what psychologically is happening to me but i think to a greater extent because i'm on it but not like not like completely obsessively right but i'm just like what's happening psychologically and like 
I guess there's these feeding frenzies, you know, these big media moments, these kinds of shared experiences where everyone's live tweeting the Oscars. Right. And I sort of get it as like, oh, it's all riff and like joke and like right. see what people are saying. And like, it's like real time criticism and right. banter. Um, but it's also like an attention fest. It's like, let me try to jump in on this train while everyone's on Twitter. And Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think the thing about the way that the Internet is built now is that pretty much most of these mechanisms are there to encourage people's worst tendencies. So, I, you know, it must seem fun, but lots of things that are really terrible can seem fun. Like cocaine. Kicking a homeless person to death, you know? Oh, God. Some people, some people find that fun. It's not good for you. But, or the homeless person. Or the homeless person, but... You know, it's like, it's like, it's like that. I mean, you think it has a, um, a detri- I mean, a detrimental effect, a damaging effect on a person. I don't know about that. I think, I think when people talk about the detrimental effects of things like the internet psychologically, I don't know how much that's really true. Cause I don't know how much each person is their own individual case. And I, I think it's when you start to generalize, you get into really queasy territory where you say things that then five years later seem completely ridiculous it's like uh friendster is destroying us all and it's like who remembers friendster (laughs) um but it was though it was destined to destroy us all before it was defeated before itself was destroyed um but i do i do think that i tend to like one of the things about the novel is that I tried to use this Marxist and God knows, and just, I'm going to say this before I get to this. It, the book is not boring. As soon as you say Marxist, it's it's like people start <laughs> running for the hills and, and they should because most Marxists are uh, terrible to, to listen to and or read. Um, but there is this idea in Marx of historical materialism, which is in its simplest uh, form, that the that the way to think about history is not to think about it in terms of great men or even social movements. It's just to think about it in terms of money and how money determines everything. And so in the novel, um, I tried to use that in its most simple form because I don't understand anything about Marxism. I'm an idiot. I can't. God knows I, I don't get it. But. I do understand that idea and I do do understand how you can use that idea to sort of propel fiction forward and also sort of how to think about this. Follow the money. Yeah, exactly. And so I think where people really are disadvantaged and where it really is detrimental to people is in the fact that we all, well, not me because I try not to, but I've had periods of, um, using Facebook more heavily than, than certainly than I do now. You're in a safe space, Jared. You can admit this. Um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) God. Uh, but I do think it's a weird thing that everyone works for Twitter or that everyone works for Facebook providing content. You would provide free content. Um, and then, yeah, we can delete it, but it's there until we do and it's used and by the way it's not easy to delete once you have ten thousand tweets you're spending like three days exactly i guess you could just delete your whole account but right it's a pain in the ass they don't make it easy no well why would they right because every tweet 
or everything you have on Facebook is essentially an advertising opportunity. So it's a really strange thing that we are just working for Facebook and we're working for Twitter and not really getting much in exchange. I mean, some people have... If I, one of the ideas that I have is that the only people that the the only people who are powerless on the internet are people who don't have anything to sell, right? If you have something to sell, then you've crossed a threshold, and that threshold, the the bargains that you have to make when you're over that threshold are a little bit different. Like, I don't know, you have a podcast, you, you have so a book, you, exactly, you have a book, you have to sort of engage with this stuff. It's not that bad because the returns on that make sense. Um, when you're just a person who's like tweeting about what they're seeing on TV, I don't know what the returns on that are. I mean, the, I think I think people see it as like hanging out with their friends, right? But usually, if at least if you have decent friends, they're not and getting like and getting. I think like uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when people fave your tweets and retweet your tweets? You're getting like uh, a feeling of validation from strangers, right? But it's like clapping for you. Yeah, but I I th I don't think that's what I mean that clearly that is that that is the motivation, but if if people were doing that in another setting, it wouldn't be like, well, the content that I've created is now essentially owned by giant corporations in and around Silicon Valley. There's something very strange there. There's something really really strange. You think there's something really uh, sinister at the heart of it all like are we gonna find out stuff later or oh like, like what do you mean i don't know just that, like oh my god google knows everything like, google's in my house or like google you know google does know everything yeah i mean google works with the cia they they launch rockets for the cia or not launch rockets they there's the cia satellite imagery is pretty much google's imagery they're really in bed with the government they're really See, that really collusion bothers me yeah when you awful. hear about like the telecom companies providing like all the phone record stuff right you're just like oh god this was all just like a, a handshake in a weird room and right all of a sudden everyone's stuff is i mean i say that and then there's also like a a lazy-minded part of me that can be like fine you know listen to my voicemails go for it if you want to you know knock right. yourself out but um I think that I, because I'm, this is the way my mind works, I always get muddled with this stuff. Like I'm, I'm big into uh, civil liberties. I, you know, I can be persuaded easily that like we shouldn't have the government sifting through phone records without a warrant. Right. Uh, we, you know, there's got to be some separation and some strict laws. But at the same time, the world being what it is, uh, terrorism being what it is, weapons being what they are, biological weapons being like. There's some serious right. shit going on. Like at some point, you are going to have to, I think, make some uh, accommodations to that when it comes to civil liberties. It's a really slippery slope and a scary gray area. But I don't see how you can be doing both at the same time all the way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you? I mean, you know, because you do have to protect against terrorism. You wrote Ada, right? I mean, so you've thought about this as well. This right. is another concern of yours. So it's like. You probably have more intelligent thoughts about it than I would, but I can sit there and kind of go back and forth and ping pong in my head. Like, you know, if you're charged with national defense, which is a necessary thing, you mm -hmm. can't just like put down. I think you do have to have some national defense. Right. How much is a, is a question. Right. But if you're charged with that and you're trying to keep track of 
not another nation, but a small cell of crazy people who potentially have uh, a suitcase nuke or a biological weapon or just a bunch of machine guns. What are you going to do except like track their phones? Like, how, what do you do? Right. I, I am the, I am sort of of a similar sense, but also not really. I mean, I fully accept the, 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 the argument that you've just made because it's right. It's true. Simultaneously, I think one of the things that we don't talk about and we don't think about in that argument is what it means that these services are even being provided, right? Um, the the idea that – here's what I would say. I think it goes back to that that same argument of the ideologies embedded in the technology. There probably were ways to build this technology and and – so that it wouldn't be so profoundly uh so 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 willing to help really terrible people do really terrible things but the people who built it were coming out of a very specific mindset so there was a lot of heavy anti-government rhetoric in the bay area in the 60s and this is what these guys were in were, were just immersed in and they were really, you know, there was really this sense of, well, look at how terrible the government is. And God knows the government actually was appalling yeah. in the 60s. And so I think you have that come down through the technology. You have that come down. And people, and then the, it's just, it's it's like the unintended consequences, right? No one who is building the internet or who is building decentralized networks or is building any of this thing, this stuff was thinking, Oh, well, 30 years later, it'll be used to, to showcase beheadings, you know, in Syria. No one was thinking about that. And I think, and I mean, not even 30 years ago, no one who built YouTube was thinking about what it really means. And I think that comes from a certain naive view of the world, right? And the naive view is everyone is like us. Everyone is an American. And the reality is they're not. And they're and and even that definition of everyone is like us is like everyone is a tech dude living somewhere on the West Coast with a very conscribed set of interests and why would this be bad? Why would this be bad? I, I mean, you know, has it mostly been bad? It's certainly been mostly been annoying, but <laughs> there there are there are places where it's been terrible. And I think because these companies have no responsibility whatsoever to what goes up online, you know, that's that's what it causes. That's there's no the edit there's no editor, there's no there's filter, no, there's, there's no, no governor. Filter. That the end point is ISIS. The end point is really terrible people using these things for really terrible reasons with like really high production value. Like yes. that, that is what is so creepy about it. Like if it were just like a shaky, like old VHS camera, but I mean like they're beautifully shot. Um, you can see why the propaganda would be effective to somebody who could be vulnerable to such propaganda, right. you know? And it's like, Oh shit. You know, this is where they're turning it against or they're, you know, they're taking it and turning it into something super evil. Um, so, but in terms of civil liberties, I think having done Ada and doing the research for Ada, 
the reality is... And Ada is about Muhammad Ada. Right. The, the guy who, one the, of the, the 9-11 terrorists. Yeah, he was the lead 9-11 terrorist. And the thing that was very peculiar about him is that most of the people who were hijackers, um, they sort of, they were mostly Saudi. They didn't really have much of a life story. Some of them were young, but most of them were just sort of in that, that shiftless place that living under oil feudalism will put you where there's lots of social services, but no opportunity. Um, Otto was very different. He, um, Muhammad Otto was a guy who had grown up in the upper middle class in Egypt, in Cairo, and who had done a bachelor's degree in architecture and then had gone to Germany and was in Hamburg and did a master's degree on, in urban planning. And the thing about that is his, um, his master's thesis was about high-rise architecture. And Did you read it? Uh, no, you can't. You can't. His, um, his advisor keeps it locked in a drawer. Why? And, and no one's seen it. Weird. Um, I would it... imagine it's painful. You know, like I would imagine that there's a lot of concern about letting it out. And I mean, I can see how it could be painful, but it, I mean, it's a matter of historical import and also like trying to figure out what the fuck happened right it seemed like you would want to know what he was thinking but we know we know what it's about we know what it's about and what it was about is he went to the syrian city of aleppo which had been surrounded and is now like isis central yeah yeah everything that every one of the strange things that happened with that book is that all of the cities that are mentioned have since turned radically different into a radically different place than when I was writing the book five years ago or whatever it was. Um, so Aleppo had been just a, just a really old, really, really old Middle Eastern city. Um, and people had been there for thousands and thousands of years. And in the mid 20th century, there was this effort towards making it a modern city and different people came in and different did different plans. And what ended up happening is what sort of always ends up happening that the plans were kind of used, but they made a muddle of them and hideous high rise buildings went up. So Otto went to uh, Aleppo to do, to study the city and to, to eventually write his thesis about it. And he wrote this thesis, which is about pulling down all of the high rises in Aleppo. Um, when I was reading about that, are they emblematic of the West to him? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, the The name of the the uh, the the thesis is something like I can't remember, but it, it, the name Death is, to America. No, no. <laughs> it, it's I, I it's it's um. It's something very oppositional about this idea that there's a traditional kind of Islamic architecture and right. then there's high rises. And so reading that and thinking about that, I was like, God, this is really weird that no one has really made this leap that this guy who wrote 
150 pages about pulling down high-rise architecture was involved in the most infamous destruction of high-rise architecture and modernist architecture in history. Um, but researching that book, it was really clear that 9-11 really was more of a failure of law enforcement than anything. People were, want people were monitoring them in Germany when, before they came here. The Germans had them monitored. Uh, the U.S. had them monitored. They could have been stopped. It just, no one really in law enforcement really put it together. So w when you think about the balance of civil liberties, it's like, I don't know, maybe the solution to that is good old-fashioned police work, like genuine detective work. Maybe it's not monitoring everyone. Maybe if you have, because no one exists in a vacuum. Very few, of, very few of these terrorist attacks have happened where it's just like one guy goes crazy. I think maybe two or three of the, the, the ones that have happened are like that. Everyone is actually just sort of part of a network and it's not clear how strong those networks are. But the minute you say something to someone else, then then that's a weakness because then they're speaking to someone else. And I think really the way to do it, if the, if the goal is to disrupt terrorism is to develop contacts and to actually nurture those contacts, do intelligence work. Exactly. Yeah. But I like, and so I've heard, you know, there's, <coughs> there's, uh, there's, uh, you, you know, there are parts of me that feels really skeptical about the, uh, necessity and the how and how it pertains to like national uh, and civic health. Uh, mm -hmm. And what I'm talking about is uh, the CIA, right? Because it feels to me like a totally unaccountable organization with very, I mean, necessarily in some respects, no transparency because they're doing espionage work. You right. can't have that advertised right. everywhere, but they were, they, they f supposedly report to Congress and mm -hmm. with the intelligence committees or the, the Senate intelligence right. committee, if I have it right. But we never, you never quite know what's going on. They were even spying on the Senate, weren't they? Been, weren't they yeah. revealed to have been spying on the Senate? So it's like, I, I've heard persuasive arguments made that if you're going to do intelligence work, which you are going to have to do in order to um, stop these kinds of plots from uh, being realized, like shouldn't that be the responsibility of the United States military, which constitutionally is under civilian control? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I just, I don't know. I just feel like the CIA has become really unruly, and, and it seems frightening. I, I think if you look at the history of the CIA, it's always been unruly. Yeah. It's, it's never really worked that well. Did you see The Good Shepherd, that movie? I did, yeah. I, I don't remember that, it. I liked but... it. Because, I, I mean, that was a, it's all about the, or, right. you know, the founding of the CIA. Uh, I thought that was kind of an underrated movie. I, I guess there's an argument that you could make that the CIA, the successes, will never know about them. But we certainly know about a lot of the failures. And mostly they seem to fail. They, they really have not historically been that good at what they've been tasked with. Now, they might be really good with the smaller stuff, but the, the bigger missions don't seem to work that do you, well. Did you ever read the, the, was it Timothy Weiner, the Legacy of Ashes book about the history of the CIA? Uh, no. no. Basically, yeah. I mean, it speaks to that, right. you know, a lot. Yeah. Um, so they've, they've definitely made their mistakes. Right. And I don't know. It just It just seems to happen... Uh, it seems like they're their own independent organization and they seem largely unaccountable. 
Yeah. And I think there needs to be more accountability. Yeah, I don't think you'll ever get it. <laughs> I, I, I don't think. I think. I think unaccountability is built into it's that into culture. Yeah. You're not. You're not going to get it. So, and you, you know, I don't understand Washington. I think very few people do. Right. But that is its doesn't own. stop me from trying. No, and but that's its own culture. Do you read a lot of political news? Unfortunately, me too. Unfortunately, I know. What is that? It's it's like listening to uh, one set of idiots talk to another set of idiots. There's no real truth in it. It's Just stoking my own anxiety. Yeah, but trying to understand. Like I, I again, I go back and forth. It's like, why am I doing this to myself? I'm just making myself anxious and pissed off. Uh, or self-righteous or whatever, you know, negative state that it puts right. me in. But at this, you know, on the other hand, it's like, listen, it's better to pay attention. Like it's better to try than to just, uh, you know, take your hands off the wheel and just let these, these people run amok. Like there should be, uh, civilian, we should be paying attention as best we can to right. try to know what's going on. But I think, I think the reality is there is a certain moment and I, I don't know what that the actual moment is, but there is a certain point in the not too distant past where the relationship between what's happening and what's being reported has completely severed. I don't think, I don't think we get, I think the news now is so much worse than it was even 20 years ago or 15 years ago. I think the internet plays a big part in that. Well, the 24 hour (laughs) news cycle. I think I think it's I think part of the thing that's really happened, which is unfortunate, is that it's become too expensive for media companies to have really good reporters. Right. Investigative, yeah. on the ground, lengthy periods of exactly. time, long form. And it's like, you know, it's a uh, profit driven. We see it with the debates. These right. things are huge cash cows. Right. That's what that that's what they're really about. Yeah. And if you have a twenty four hour news cycle and an internet maw that is always like gaping and needs to be fed, right. Like what are you gonna do? Like you're right. just gonna constantly uh push content out there and then you've got um, you know, like the Roger Ailes model where you're basically um not a news network but a propaganda uh machine and you're confirming the biases of a certain uh, of people of a certain political persuasion or or you know on the other side of the line not an equivalency but somewhat similar msnbc doing the same thing on the left i always like to point that out like msnbc and fox news are in some way similar but they're not equal i do i disagree i think they're exactly the same i think they're the same i don't think there is a left in america i think that it's pretty much the same argument being made from slightly different vantage points basically fox news and msnbc are incredibly neoliberal organizations where the 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 idea is so i think i think if you were to if you were to really envision what the perfect world would look like for the people Let's who figure run, it out for our who, listeners who, who run <laughs> msnbc i don't think it would be about i don't think it would look that different than the world that we have now i think what would be different would be that the one percent and maybe the top five percent would have would look more like america right it would be browner it would have more people of color it would have so so i guess the question is i'm I'm saying this terribly wrong but i guess the idea is 
from a real leftist perspective, it would not, it would be a significant income redistribution, right? Is, is this like the Bernie Sanders versus like the centrist Democrat argument? Yeah, but I don't think, I don't think the Democrats are centrist. I think they're just right. I think that our definitions of left and right have become so incredibly distorted. Well, compared to the rest of the world. Com- well, just compared to what left and right actually supposedly are, right? I mean, even the rest of the world has, has been infected by the last 30 years of or 40 years of American and British style capitalism. But there really was this moment, not that far, far and far away where the idea was that there was more reality than the free market. Right. Where, which I don't think is the case at all now here, especially something like MSNBC, that's, they love the free market. That's, that's well, it's a corporate media. Yeah. That's that. Those are the waters in which they swim. I mean, what they would, what their, what their actual ideal would be, would not to be, not to be have a society where everyone can live in relative peace without threats of dying in the street, hungry. They don't care about that. What they care about is representation in the 1%. So if you have 15% African-American population, 15% of the 1% should be African-American. If you have 25% Latino, 25% of the 1% should be Latino. That's really not a model of leftism or fairness or anything. That's just what we have with slightly shifted, you know, with the people slightly shifted. But I think think they're the same. Hmm. I don't see any difference between between those networks. I mean, now that being said, what about I, Anderson Cooper? I feel like he cares about me when he looks into my eyes. I don't think Anderson Cooper cares about anything. I, I, I where mean, are you? You're, you're, you're a I, leftist. I am politically. so ridiculously left that I can't even stand to hear myself talk. No, no, it's about, okay. I, I think, but I think it's, it's germane to our time because we're in an election year, but it's yeah. also fascinating because I, I was having dinner with a friend of mine last night and I was like, so, you know, I was like, you're obviously Bernie because he's always right. like, he thinks Obama's a sellout and, right. um, you know, Hillary Clinton is like an eye roll. And he told me last night that he thinks Bernie's too conservative. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, like, I don't, I, I give up. Like, who's, well, I, I'm, I'm leftist, but I'm politically pragmatic. Right. I think that I, that would, I could describe myself that way. Right. So I think I certainly would not say that Sanders is too conservative by any means, but you know, I mean, people who were disappointed in Obama weren't listening to what he was saying yeah, when I he never was getting elect- elected. I mean, he ran as maybe a slightly left of center conservative, you know, that so that's what you get. I think I say I think he's got <clears throat> some genuine liberal leanings, but I think he has a small C conservative temperament. I think that. um I don't know. Persuasive arguments could be made, especially when it comes to like the 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 financial uh, team that he put together and how embedded they were in right. the big banks. I mean, you can start to see like, wow, he just he didn't really take a swing at those people. He basically gave them a big hug. But yeah, I don't know. You know, it's like, what do you do? Like, if those things went under the way the system was built as it was, would that have? I think their argument, where his argument would be like, yeah, it was ugly. But if right. we let those things go under. Like people were going to suffer more. Ordinary people were going to suffer more. Right. I, you know, I don't know enough. To, I'm not smart enough on that stuff to know if he's if he's accurate or not. I mean, I think 
I, I think there is a legitimate that's a legitimate argument on their part that probably ordinary ordinary people would have suffered more. But they all, they're pretty su- they're still suffering. You know, it hasn't the suffering happened. It it hasn't gone away. I saw this. I can't remember what I was watching, but it was some kind of talking heads thing online. It might have been on blogging heads. Actually, I can't remember who it was. And it was. You know, it was this false dichotomy. It was a guy on the left, a guy on the right, both politically and literally on the left and the right, talking to each other. And the guy, the guy on the left was talking about how he just didn't understand Trump and he didn't understand Sanders' rise. He's like, I just don't understand why people are so angry. And he's talking about all of the things that are seemingly going better, which on paper they are. And I just realized when I was looking at it, like, this is the New York, D.C. media access in, in unbelievable bubble mode, right? These, he, to this guy, because he's so incredibly enmeshed in the world of D.C., of think tanks and all of this stuff, <laughs> of course the world is – of course he has no idea why people are angry because you just don't see it. But I think, you know, the amount of suffering that has happened – in the last seven years, eight years is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, Like the amount of shit that has happened to poor and working class people is, and middle-class people and middle-class. I mean, you know, it's not like it's the thing about it. Is it, what do you mean even when you say middle-class? Right. Um, well, these these definitions start to like, it's like, you know, most people are struggling right in this country. Right. And I think that, uh, that wears on people, especially when you start to see how unfair, um, you know, things can be systemically with regard to right. the government and finance. And I don't know, it's, it's easy to get pissed off is basically, right. and, yeah. and for good reason, you yeah. know? So when you talk about the internet and you talk about media consumption, um, just to kind of, you know, draw, draw this back into, um, you know, online experience, sure. like how do you consume if you're not on social media very much at all? Um, you know, then what do you do? And like, where do you, where do you consume news? Like, do you try to be disciplined about where you go? I, I get news online. I mean, like, like everyone, um, but are you like the intercept? Is it like Glenn Greenwald or what is it? No, no. I mean, it's, it's fairly mainstream with me. I, I'm not, you know, you know, there are some individual websites which are really interesting. There's a, there's a website called breaking Brown, which is run by this woman, Yvette Carnell. That's that's a really interesting website, um, but mostly it's mostly it's mainstream stuff. Um, and then, God help me, I cannot stop reading the Drudge Report. I go I go all the time, but I, I can't. But see, the thing is, is it sounds like you and I might read uh, mainstream political news in something of the same way where you're going at it as like a media critic. Right. Like it's almost like you have to pay attention to the mainstream to be able to see what the national discourse right. is going to be. Even right. if you know, it's like largely bullshit, but like right. I'll often go to like the Huffington post and then go to the dredge report immediately after just to see how their headlines are competing because they're driving narrative. Right. I mean, if you turn on your right. TV, like that's what's driving narrative, the dredge right. report and Fox news right. and talk radio uh, on the right yeah. wing, you know, they're, they're all of a piece. And I feel like, you know, he's got like this weird level of influence. He like Matt Drudge is such a strange character. Oh, he's endlessly rich and fascinating yeah. as a subject. Yes. He, he is. 
I mean, it's it's really strange. It's it's everything that you think should be good. The story itself is the most Horatio Alger story you can imagine. This guy who is working, what was he? He was like working at, in the gift shop at Universal Studios. <laughs> and then he lived, um, do you know that building in Hollywood, the Fauntleroy, which is on, I think it's on Whitley. It's this, okay, this, yeah. tire, this tower that rises up. And at that point, you know. That part of Hollywood was like... Hollywood's still a little rough. So Hollywood's still rough, but it's not like that. I actually, I had a friend who lived over, like, a basically a building away from Drudge when Drudge was becoming Drudge, and I actually visited him, and I was so young. You visited your friend? My friend. Okay. So I was in that neighborhood, the neighborhood that where Drudge was, where Drudge... Is was Drudge there. in L.A.? No, he's in Florida. Oh, he's now. in Florida. Okay, yeah. He... But... That no was, income tax. That was an insanely rough neighborhood. Yeah. So you have this guy who is in extremely squalid circumstances who works his way up to be, you know, the king of all media, the true king of all media. Strange. And um, just seems to use it primarily for evil. Yeah. Primarily for evil. Like what? I mean, because you read the way that the way that the news is spun on that site, the way the links are presented um, but it's sort of irresistible, even as somebody who completely disagrees with it. You go there just to like look at the look he, at the darkness. The thing about that site, which I have thought about a lot, I feel like you should write uh, your next book should just be called Drudge. God, can you imagine <laughs> the shitstorm that would befall anyone who who did that? But I mean, to have to have Drudge unleash. I feel his... like you're uniquely qualified based on your your work so far. Oh God, I I. I don't know if there's that much there. I mean, he, someone wrote a bio. Fiction, fictionalized. Of, someone wrote a bio of him. I've heard he's closeted. He is. He is. Someone and and whoever wrote the bio of him, it has this amazingly strange section in it where I think it's something like they talk to one of his ex-lovers and his ex-lover is like, "Yeah, he really likes being naked and having eggs cracked on his body." Well, wow. something something really <laughs> bizarre like that. Um no, he just, he just, you know, I mean, this is, this is Drudge in a nutshell. There was a news story that broke three days ago about how he had given this guy a house, the house next to his house in Florida. And it was a, it was a quick claim decree. So the guy got the house for about 10 bucks and it's a guy who's been cohabitating with Drudge for 10 years uh, ends Latino. And I mean, can you think of two things that Drudge has been worse on than gay rights and Latino people? Well, you know, I've always been fascinated. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And it's always, it's always fascinated me um, to think about uh, the ways in which closeted gay people, especially in Washington, D.C., um, but also like in the priesthood, you know, right. these institutions that uh, if you are in the closet and have an interest in staying in the closet, uh, provide good cover. You know, I guess I, it makes psychological sense that that's where they would gravitate to. Right. But it's like, wow, you're sitting there advocating such, uh, you know, a damaging policy. You know, it's, it's like self-hatred. It's like the political expression of self-hatred. And it's very depressing to think about. <laughs> yeah. You, you get that into a position of influence and it can be horrifying just horrifying but i mean you know how does he justify it to himself like what in the world goes through a person's head when he's got i mean if it's true i mean he's got a latino lover right 
that's and, that that's lived with him for 10 years yeah i mean how does he like and, and, and how does the latino lover compute this i mean it's just strange how people can justify maybe you know what maybe he's like it's a fucking cash cow is it i mean is it that base do you know what i'm saying like i i think i think drudge has depths to him that and i and and i mean that both in a relatively positive sense and in a negative sense that we just can't fathom. Yeah. I, I mean, there, that is a truly strange guy. That site as an act of autobiography yeah. is fascinating. Yeah. No. And I, it's such a strange experiment because there's so little original content and yet, and the design is, is like purposefully rudimentary and yet the personality comes through. It just comes through in every single link in uh, every every day. Wow! It just it just comes through. It's crazy. Yeah, and but yeah, giving a house to a to a dude he's been living with for ten years, and you know, for all we know, could be married to. Who knows? I guess that would be public record. I don't think you can get gay married in Florida. Well, yeah, but no, didn't the uh, with the Supreme Court decision you can get oh, gay that's married right. anyway? God, sorry, I'm in a, I'm in a time warp. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I'm sucking uh, you back yeah. into like yeah, sorry, 2009. Um, so yeah, so you read online, you don't do social media. You seem like somebody who, um, like, wh- who is describing you as the American Welbeck? When I read that, I was like, he's going to come over drunk. He's going to be smoking like you know, jetans. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, Jonathan Lethem. That's pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, it was he. I got him an early copy, and he he reviewed the book. Did you know him previously, or did you just? I had it? met him in a bathroom. Well, wow. yeah, that explains um, it. He he was at uh, the a couple of years ago. There was a Philip K. Dick festival, and I was also at it. And he was, you know, we were there in very different capacities. I was a peon. He was the keynote speaker, and actually gave probably. One of the smartest things I think anyone's ever really said about Philip K. Dick was when he was talking. What did he say? He was talking about um, there was a moment, and I cannot remember what Philip K. Dick scholars call it, but there's a moment where Dick's books change pretty dramatically from just like kind of speed freaky sci-fi that's weird into psychedelic much more engaged work and what's uh, a, what's what do you think is uh philip k dick's masterpiece or what are what are his better books uh valis is is pretty astonishing uh the transmigration of timothy archer which is a book that when i read it as a teenager i couldn't understand at all um but having read it recently is in some ways the best book about the bay area that anyone has has written um a scanner darkly is is pretty is pretty amazing. I'm really partial to this one book that everyone else hates uh, called We Can Build You, which is about <laughs> it's about a company that builds organs like musical organs, and then somehow they start building androids and they build an Abraham Lincoln android. Okay, but the book came at this very strange moment in his career where. Dick had been trying to write mainstream psychological novels, which no one wanted to publish. And he, at the same time, he was doing his really speed freaky, sure, you know, clans of the Alphane moon phase. <laughs> and so we can build you was this really self-conscious attempt to marry 
the psychological novel with the sci-fi plot. But it's the weirdest sci-fi plot because it's like, well, we built an Abraham Lincoln android and now everyone is feeling very emotional about it. And it's it's a really peculiar book. Not a lot of people like it. I think I think there's something quite genuine. Well, but you there. share like I think like like I was going to say like this this speaks to the kind of writer you seem to me to be. I think Welbeck would fall somewhat in this camp. I think a guy like Kurt Vonnegut sort of falls into this camp, where you're sort of and I, correct me if I'm wrong, sure. but it's like almost like you're you're you have these big ideas or, or these problems, right? Or institutions that you're thinking about right. and thinking about and chewing on. And the fiction then is a response to those and is in some way you trying to present, uh, I don't know if solution, the solution might be too neat of a word, but you know what I'm saying? Like, do, do you, or do you, or do you start with this? Like, I have a story idea right. and it just so happens that it, I figured out at the end that it's all about the internet. No, no. I'm an extraordinarily angry person. Just unbelievably angry. You have angry. a temper? No, I've gotten under control. Uh, the Passive aggressive? No, the writing seems to be where it comes out. That's healthy. But um, I, I think if I weren't writing, I would be one of these people on the street screaming at stop signs. You know, I would be crazy, just crazy. The writing, the writing seems to be a good focus. You, you know, it's like one of we'll these. We'll keep writing then. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like one of these things where, when you're younger the the limits of your world seem to be the limits of the entire world and you're still angry about stuff but you're like you're angry at your high school principal or you're angry fucking dick yeah or you're angry at your friends and so you have this real problem where if you're relatively bright if you're relatively articulate you can be in a situation where you're directing that rage at people who really don't deserve it because it's just so hard to understand truly complex situations. So if you think about kids who are doing like punk rock zines about how basically the other kids who are doing punk rock zines were the worst people alive, <laughs> that's a really good example of that. I yeah. think if you're lucky enough to have the time to mature and the time to really start thinking about big complex things, that can then sort of become an appropriate place to funnel that anger. Um, the internet being one of them. You yeah. Know, like that's, that's a good tangle. That's a good yeah, ball of yarn. That's, that's a place that's endlessly hateable and will hate you back with, with, with no, with no blush. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I would accept, I would accept the Vonnegut. I think that's that's sort of the mode that I would prefer to be writing in. Because um, you're a funny writer too, right? It's yeah. not like this is all just like, oh my god. No, no, internet. it's it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's totally depressing, but it's also incredibly funny. But you got to so, go. I mean, what, yeah. otherwise you'll drive yourself crazy. Like right. if you're not screaming at stop signs, you'll be crying. Right. You know. Yeah. So you have crying to... at stop signs <laughs> might be slightly <laughs> less attractive. It's got to laugh laugh at the darkness. Yeah, I. I, you know, it's the, it's a strange thing. It's like trying to, cause I don't, one of the things that I don't have, which I sort of envy people who do have, I don't have the ability to completely inhabit a mental space where I can't think about 
how this is going to be received. Those are writers that I kind of admire, the writers who are able to just do some totally crazy shit and not care. Like Welbeck is, is, is a pretty good example of that. He, he strikes me as someone who could easily write an 800-page novel and have it be entirely about vegetables or something and 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 how much he hates vegetables or you know how vegetables are muslims or something <laughs> like that I, I mean i don't have that i'm really interested in the communication aspect of writing um if it were a situation situation where it was like well i just want to put this stuff out there i don't actually want to communicate with readers i just wouldn't publish it i just would these would just be files. So what you're saying is you're constantly thinking about the reader. Pretty much. You're not able to sit there at the keyboard and just kind of like sing your song. It's like all about like imagining the audience. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's a hard thing though. It's, I think in some ways it might be easier to be someone who doesn't think about the audience because just does it for their own pleasure. Yeah. There's no pleasure for me. No, there's, there's, I like to hear that. There's absolutely no pleasure. It's, agonizing you write slow or slowly i write fast but it takes me forever to start once i start i can i can do it how long did it take you to write the like i hate the internet two months you wrote the book in two months yeah and then subsequent revision but basically in its final form were you doing lots of thought work and research previously i mean it must have been subconsciously percolating but i mean was there anything formal like i had to read not with not with this one not with this one with otta i mean there is a ton of research sure there's a ton of research but even that when i sat down to write it which and i mean that's a very short book but it was maybe a month maybe a month and a half something like that god damn yeah but like I said, the, the, the thinking about it, I can't just sit down. No, it takes, and, I, I can see how that yeah. works. Like you, you, it's all upstairs, but it takes a while to get it to that point. And then when you finally have, when you're finally full, right. You sit down and kind of like vomited it out or whatever. That's, that's not to be crude. No, no, that's the image. I think that's the most appropriate is, <laughs> you know, someone sitting there vomiting, particularly with this book, I think is, is a little bit of, it's a little vomit. It feel good in a way though. Yeah. I mean, I mean, who doesn't want to like do a broadside against the internet or just like, it seems like that would be a satisfying, especially if you're getting laughs. Like if you're like, one of the things that I love, uh, when I write is when I'm making myself laugh. Right. Like that's, that's where it's fun. Right. You have to, you have to have those moments, right? Where you're a like, little bit, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. a little bit. There are certainly moments where it's actually satisfying, but those are <laughs> really few, <laughs> few and far between. I, I find it to be just a strange life choice that yeah. i've made just yeah. look at me dude look where we're sitting well you have a garage <laughs> i mean i don't even have a garage i yeah. but i i don't really like possessions so if i had a garage i want to get rid of so much shit you should do you have you know you don't have kids do you? god no okay no. yeah i mean once you have kids like we have more shit more plastic yeah more toys dolls like just it's just accumulates so let me ask you a question actually yeah. about that yeah because i was having a conversation with someone the other day and i was talking and i was complaining because all i do is complain i was talking about how you know how every couple of years and actually it just started again there's always these arguments about toys, right? There's arguments where it's like, well, there is not, I think, I think what started was that. So the new star Wars film came out and there Mm -hmm. was some problem where 
there wasn't an exact gender representation uh, in the toys. Like, they, for some reason, some toy line didn't have the female lead. And people were really upset yeah, about yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I read about that. <clears throat> or, like, so, saw a headline. So I was like, the the thing that I was saying was, this seems to me like the most insane possible ma- model of parenting, right? Like, I don't think I don't think anyone should be happy. Uh, I, I mean, I understand the impulse, which is like you don't want things that you buy for your children to impact them negatively or fill them with ideologies that you don't have, you don't agree with. But it did seem to me it's like it's really weird to be arguing about Star Wars because regardless of how that works, what you're essentially saying is not that. I don't want my child to be a consumer and be trapped in this cycle of having to buy Star Wars shit for the rest of their life. What you're <laughs> saying is I want I want the appropriate corporate owned plastic hunk to come into the house. And then the person who I said this to was like you don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's well no I've heard yeah. this I've heard this said before. I've, I mean I've heard I'm thinking in particular of like, it was like someone on Twitter, someone online talking about how she doesn't have kids, but her sister does. And her sister has little girls and she, you know, she bought them Barbie dolls and she thought this was horrible. And she, you know, this, this woman was like, I never want to have kids, but if I do, God forbid I would. And I'm like, you don't have kids. Right. Like it's totally different once you have a daughter and like, you know, kids learn from each other. Right. She wants a Barbie doll, and it's like it becomes very difficult, right? So to how deny. Do, so how do you how do you manage that? Do you just have to give into it? I mean, yeah, and I just you know I think that I don't know how sinister it is. You know, like I think like there are body image things that can happen with a Barbie doll, though that's just been corrected right. recently. I saw that. Um, I kind of feel like it's it's just really difficult to be a perfect parent, and I guess maybe I'm. If I'm going to, like, die on the battlefield or what is it, die at the altar of certain causes, right. it's not going to be that one. Right. And I think, too, like, you know, if you're an involved parent and you're doing other things and and giving your daughter, for example, um, ways of thinking about gender and herself and her place in the world, um, then a Barbie doll's not going to affect her so much. Right. You know, but if you're not, or if the kid's sitting in front of the TV 24 seven, or if you're a negligent parent and she's just getting it on the playground, then there could be problems. Right. I don't know, man. It's complicated. <laughs> so how many kids do you have? Two. And one's a one's girl a and a boy. So now have you had to see frozen? Oh yeah. I've been to frozen, like Disney frozen on ice. Oh, God. Uh, we've got the, the costumes, we've got the books, we've got the everything. I mean, so, so now what, what kind of feelings do the, does, does this instill in you? Like is at the beginning, it must be like, well, this is something new, but then there has to be like, oh, there's, no, another... it's like there's a dead, like there's just a deadness in my eyes. Like every time <laughs> I see like Anna and Elsa and Olaf, I mean, but the thing about it though, is that as much as it can be easy to fall into, um, you know, a, a cynic or a cynical internal monologue when you're like exposed to this stuff. Right. The joy of your children mm-hmm. supersedes that. I can like, see. I that. took my yeah. daughter to see Disney like Frozen on Ice at the Staples Center, mm-hmm. and it was magic to her. And like, you know, like I get it. Like, boy, Disney has monetized this thing every which way, right. and they've got their hooks and kids. Right. But like the story itself 
there's I mean it's a little I mean it's a fairy tale and it's about like right. sisters and the power of love and there's you know pretty good songs for kids you know I just I guess that's just not where I'm going to draw the line right no I just it's 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 interesting because I haven't seen it I have no idea what it is but I'll take you if you want to go no, I think <laughs> I think I can skip it no I actually I actually hate 3D animation I hate 3D period yeah I can't do a 3D movie yeah. it makes me sort of nauseous I, I, too much even just computer generated animation i can't deal with oh yeah yeah i really find that to be difficult um it all looks hideous to it, me i don't know yeah i guess like there are some instances where i don't know I, I i shouldn't say i can like a pixar movie yeah i can't i i can't i, I you see wally i've i saw it on a, a like a, a really shitty television in a laundromat that might be the way that you were meant to see it. Right. That's like ideal. Yeah. Take some of the, some of the pop off of the 3D. It, it, uh, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. So let me ask you another question. Yeah, no, please. Which is, so the podcast, right? Yeah. You, you're advertiser supported and listener supported. Right. Right. So. Modestly. Modestly. Yeah. But still. Always trying. But there's stuff coming in. Sure. Right. So with the advertising, how do you feel about that? Uh, I mean, I feel like I've got a, I've got a family to feed right. and I spend a lot of time on this. I feel like, um, the stuff that like the advertisements that I've done, I mean, I guess it can get complicated when it's like, Oh, if you're doing like a spot for audible and you know that audible is owned by Amazon right. and you have complicated feelings about Amazon. Right. But again, it's like, man, it's hard to. Like, and I do the nervous breakdown, we have display ads and sometimes the display ads are, you know, an audible ad right. when those are uh, filling up inventory. Most of the time it's publishers and it's books. Right. That's about as good as you're going to get. Right. And so for this show, it's like I did one for like an MFA program. I've done them for um, headphones, mm -hmm. earbuds. It feels fairly, um, you know, benign to me. Right. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, you know, like, and then there's premium subscriptions. There's, you have to monetize the show i mean to justify the amount of time expense and also you know i do i would like to make some money right, for my course, time to get, get compensated so you do the best you can right you know no i i'm curious about it because and and i and i ask that without any judgment because i love how the interview just completely flipped right <laughs> because to to me the thing that's so strange right is i i had an epiphany about 2 years ago I had spent my entire life as, um, you know, I'd been a punk kid when I, when I, when I was a teenager, I was really into punk and I just, I really sort of bought into this idea that people hate advertising. And then I realized about two years ago, no, one of the reasons why you don't understand anything is, be be is because people like being advertised to people really like th this is why people watch the Super Bowl. And so it started making me think a lot about advertising. And it's like someone like you, you're in this strange situation where you kind of have to do it. And, you know, you have to do what you have to do. And I don't think I don't think there's anything right or wrong about it, because realistically speaking, we're all participating in some pretty hideous systems. It's impossible to have clean hands. Yeah, it's completely impossible. But I haven't had to do that. 
And so I'm, I'm always curious about what it's like to sort of have to do that. I think you pick. I mean, luck, fortunately, I haven't been presented with anything like, you know, some gun manufacturer. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, if that were the case, I would say no. If it were Exxon Mobil, right. I would say no. Right. Um, you know, and so there are there are places where I would draw the line. Right. But, you know, my show and, uh, you know, it's not going to be something that those kinds of entities would want to have anything to do with anything. Right. So... So far, it hasn't been that big of an issue, um, but it is like anything, any, any online content, whatever it is, whether it's right, you know, written content or whether it's audio or video. And like, if you make YouTube videos right. and you decide that you want to have advertisements put on them, right. you don't even really have control. I don't think right. YouTube and Google suddenly have control over what yeah. advertisements, you know, so you have to make those deals with the devil, I right. guess, or, or not, right. or not. And that's the decision people make, but a lot of it's just driven by reality yeah i mean this stuff takes time it takes an enormous amount of effort to do yeah and how are you going to make money off of it i don't know it's 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 strange i mean that's a strange thing too because when the web was really in as it's it's in its incipient phase there were so many ideas that Oh, culture creators are going to get rewarded right. and all of this stuff, and it never none of it turned out. No, I'm mm-hmm. like a, I'm like kind of a textbook case for that. Like I was a real web optimist in the early aughts. Mm-hmm. Started like a literary magazine, was going to build a community, was going to monetize like all that stuff. I believed it was possible. Right. right. I, I was quickly uh, chastened. Right. You know, it wasn't like I hung on too long. I still have the site, but like I've become a lot more realistic about what's possible. And like, you know, I sort of fell for that that song and dance and it was bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. It just, well, you know, it was people, the people who came up with those ideas just had no, I had no clue about humans and they just weren't very good with people. They were very good with technology, not very good with people. And I think that's kind of the mess of all of it. Well, and I was going to say it's extended. It's not just exclusive to, um, you know, the written media, it's also now, you know, it's music, right? Like the fractalization of all really now all media. Cause I feel like film and television were some of the, um, later holdouts or whatever, but now things have just exploded. Right. And I guess I'm wondering, I mean, you can still make a, a ton of money in movies though. You have to be writing like Marvel comic right. adaptations or these big tentpole, like action movies with giant budgets right. typically. Um, but you can make money in television there are fewer seats at that table. It seems like increasingly. And I'm like, so this is basically what's going to happen. It's just going to be like more and more content, but it gets harder and harder to make any money producing it. Or is it always hard? I I think, I think it's always hard, but I think it's definitely gotten harder. I mean, one of the things that the book is, if nothing else is, you mean the book generally or your book, my book is a, um, it's a love letter to, all of those Gen X people who are slightly older than me, because there's something that's probably me. <laughs> no, I, wh- how old are you? I'm 40. Oh yeah. But you're only a couple of years older than me. Okay. Um, but no, there, there was this really weird thing in the early nineties where you could go to these people's apartments and they would be, they wouldn't be making a lot of money, but they would be able to live fairly decent lives as artists and and writers and maybe they had to have a side job but it wasn't their entire life right and and i think they were the last people 
to really be able to do that. Well, and, and also where like the Gen X, the, the thing that, I mean, Gen X gets glossed over because right. we're not as big as the millennials and right. it's just not as interesting to marketers. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, we had analog childhoods. Right. Right. You know, and like we've had a bifurcated life in that way, whereas like millennials kind of grew up digital all the way. I, I saw this astonishing article, just astonishing. It was on Medium. I don't remember the name of the woman who wrote it. It was an article about the realities of being a YouTube star. Um, and so the article starts really well. And at the beginning of the article, she's talking about some YouTube star that I, I don't know. I don't know any of it because I'm not 13. Um, right. But, and it's like, so the, the, the beginning of the article is there's just been some kind of award show for video or for online content. And people from BuzzFeed go to get food at this restaurant near where the award show is. And their waitress turns out to be some huge YouTube star but she can't make any money off of being on YouTube. So she has to be this waitress. And the reason why she has to be a waitress is because when she had more, had different jobs, people would come like kids would figure out where she worked right? and they would just come and disrupt just, just because they wanted to see this YouTube star. And that's a really strange model of, of existence. But the thing about that article that was so mind blowing was it's so good for the first half. And then where the woman who wrote it starts writing about her own experience. It's so crazy. It gets, like she becomes a YouTube star. She, well, she is, she's been trying to be a YouTube star, but I actually went and maybe looked, I should do that. But here's the thing. I went and I looked at her YouTube videos yeah. and I'm not trying to shit on anyone, but no one should get paid for those. Like, you just should not get paid for them. There's some stuff that you shouldn't get paid for. So then after that, I went and I looked at her Twitter and it was so bizarre. I felt like I was looking into another world and maybe it's just cause I'm getting older, but it was so strange. It was her arguing with her trolls on Twitter and you know, something's gone horribly wrong. If you're, tr if you're a woman on Twitter and your trolls are trolling you, not by calling you a slut, but by just telling you the truth. And so her argument that she was, that she makes in the article, but really makes in Twitter, uh, was making on Twitter rather was something like, you know, why shouldn't I get paid for my job? Why shouldn't I get paid for this? And it's just like, who hired you? You know, you, this isn't a job. This is a hobby. And why, why would you think that anyone would actually give you money for this? Because this isn't really of particular value. No, I think the thing that's weird about that is the mythology of YouTube is that everyone is providing things of value and everyone will be get, get compensated. But I don't think that's true. And I, I think it may be that because these companies have a really vested interest in perpetuating that mythology. Like Google really wants everyone to think they can be a star on YouTube and really wants everyone to monetize that content because if they you, get a cut, they get, well, they get the real cut, right? If you, if your video gets 10, 10 hits or even 10,000, 
views, rather, it's um, you're not getting a lot of money, but Google will. Google will really get some bank off of that. But I think maybe what that's done, that this myth that we can all be creators and that we'll all be justly rewarded for our creations is, is sort of obscure the fact that it's always been hard. It's always been incredibly difficult to actually make this stuff pay to monetize content to to monetize content. I mean, particularly if you're not willing or unable like me, um, to get into bed with huge companies. Um, I mean, I'm even publishers publisher. No one knows who I am. You know, I'm people on the West coast kind of know who I am. People in Europe. Kind well, of. wait till you get on this show, dude. It's going to blow oh, up. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, this, this book so far has been, and it hasn't really even launched yet. It has been without question, the most successful launch that I've had. And that is sort of because I'm controlling everything, which was not the case with other books. And that's not to slag anyone. It's just, if you're able to pull the strings on all of it, there can be a little bit more of a concerted, concerted effort, but no, it's been, it's, it's a really strange, my position is particularly bizarre. And I think part of it is because I've made some very bad choices. Haven't we all though? Well, I mean, I think the worst choice that I've made and that probably you've made too, is being in California. Yeah. Right. Well, financially it's difficult to be here. Financially, it's hard, but I also think for writers, I don't think that if if the epicenter, apparently, of serious writing is in New York, I don't think they care about California writers. I mean, I think people can make their way in, but it's more by accident or good luck. Than or once they've sold a bajillion, you know, once you've sold enough units. To move to California? Well, then, yeah. or just to make a publisher care. I mean, right. they'll care about you if you're selling enough units. But there are very few there are very few serious writers from California you that that really get play there's always the celebrity bio there's always you know there's there's always certain kinds of writing but there's not there's not really a concerted effort or a concerted interest in having intellectuals from California go anywhere other than California. I really, truly believe that. I really think there's some kind of systemic bias against being a writer in California in terms of dealing with anyone in New York. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's always, I mean, it's sort of like the East Coast, West Coast rivalry and, you know, that's very well documented. Yeah. I think it's, I think there's some truth to it. Yeah. No, I, I really think that's the case. So. Well, maybe you'll be the one to break the mold a little bit. And, and you know, there's something to be said for zigging when everyone else is zagging and writing from a, you know, a place geographically and otherwise that it doesn't conform to the norm. Right. You know, maybe people are hungry for that. They've read enough books that are set in Brooklyn or whatever, you know? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. I don't, I don't know if that's, the, if that's true. I have, I'm very dubious on all of this. I mean, I think for me, the success of this book would be if it feels like the book gets beyond the usual suspects in terms of readers, that's success. Um, if it's just contained in the very small abattoir of the literary world that will be like that will not be as happy of a thing because i often feel like when you're writing in that place you're 
kind of just having a conversation with yourself where it's a narrow channel. We're all, we're all on the left. We're all, you know, we all believe certain things. How much of a dialogue can you really have? You know, you're not going to be bringing people into the light if that's what you want to do. It tends to be about reaffirmation and I have better things to do than reaffirm people's soft left politics. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I appreciate you coming over here and talking. This has been really interesting. Uh, I think we have some similar concerns and, uh, I appreciate all the deep thinking you've done about this stuff and your willingness to share it here. Congratulations on the book. Best of luck with whatever comes next. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's Jared Kobach. His novel is called I Hate the Internet. It's available now from We Heard You Like Books. The pub date, the official pub date is February 9th, 2016. Go get it. Purchase it, pre-order it, buy it. Whenever you happen to be listening to this, you can find Jared. Actually, no, you can't find Jared uh, online because he hates the fucking internet. Though he does have a Twitter feed, at Jared Kobach, which he never checks. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget this program, this podcast, has its own official app, the Other People app. It's free. Get the Other People app. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this podcast. Here's how it works. You get the app. It's free. The app is then on your phone, right? Or your iPad or whatever. Uh, the most recent 50 episodes of the program will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50 episodes are free. Uh, and then if you want to get at the archives, if you want access to everything, everywhere you go at your fingertips, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the uh, app. And it costs uh, 75 cents a month. Access to everything. 75 cents a month. Three quarters a month gets you access to all that programming. Almost 400 episodes and counting. And it's a great way to support the show, so do that if you uh, feel the inclination. So, yeah, the Iowa caucuses were last night. I don't know if you guys are political. Are you political? How could you miss this? Donald Trump going down in defeat. That was satisfying. Ted Cruz winning. That's unsatisfying, in my view. It's frightening. The whole thing is such a shit show. Especially uh, the Republicans. And then Bernie and Hillary, uh, I don't think is a shit show. And I guess I'm biased because that's my political persuasion. But uh, they seem to me like two serious candidates with a grasp of the issues. Vying for the nomination and dead heat. What's going to happen? It's like youth versus... It's like the young versus the old. It's the millennials versus the baby boomers. That's what it feels like. It's a generational tete-a-tete on the Democratic side. The millennials like Bernie, which is a little bit odd because he's 74. The baby boomers are big Clinton fans. I'll tell you, I covered the... Uh, 2008 Democratic National Convention when Barack Obama, uh, you know, accepted the nomination for the first time. And uh, I was, uh, I met, I had through friends of a friend or whatever, I met, uh, I met some people who were political operatives and had some ties to the Clinton machine. I don't know how deep they were, but they were, they were, they just did not get Obama at all. And they were, you know, way into the Clintons. There's a certain baby boomer profile that really attached themselves uh, to the, the Clintons. I guess as one does. I feel attached to Obama to a certain way, in a certain way. Maybe not that deeply. And maybe the millennials have, uh, have Bernie. I have Bernie. I mean, you know, if we're talking about emotional connection, 
I've already talked about this on this show. I'm not going to belabor it, but the Iowa caucus is interesting. New Hampshire next week. We're going to get through this process. It's exhausting. It really is withering, but I guess uh, essential to the uh, perfection of our union. I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's up in the air at this point on both sides. It'd be interesting to watch. Please remember that Pascal died of abdominal convulsions and that Valerie died of throat cancer. That's it for this week. Uh, Thanks again to you guys for listening. Thanks to Jared Kobeck. Go get his novel, I Hate the Internet. And uh, I will be back again, uh, I believe, next week with episode 400. And uh, if not next week, due to extenuating circumstances, then the week after. So bear with me. Uh, You know what I'm saying? Bear with me. I will get you uh, a new episode as soon as I possibly can. (laughs) 